0: Hi, my name is Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and here's all the key news in the world of battery materials this month. Welcome to November's edition of Recharge, the podcast by Battery Materials Review. Later in this month's podcast, we have an interview with Ying Lu a senior analyst at Roskill who specializes in nickel and nickel sulfate for the battery industry. She has some very interesting background and perspectives about the emerging supply-demand gap in this key battery material. This month's focus article in Battery Materials Review discusses how localization of supply chains can increase the sustainability of battery production. We hear a lot about decentralizing the battery supply chain away from China for security of supply issues, but we also contend that doing so will make battery production less polluting and more attractive from a life cycle emissions point of view. And with sustainability becoming a key issue for auto OEMs, we think this is a really important point. We discussed the key projects which could make up future localised supply chains for both Europe and North America, and also discussed some of the key factors in battery materials production which can impact greenhouse gas emissions. Moving on to raw materials news now, and given this month's interview, our lead article is quite apt, given that it highlights how Tesla seems to be in talks with practically everyone as it seeks to source sustainable nickel supplies. And this is a key issue, since, as Ying highlights in our interview, there's not only a huge demand growth potential in the sector, but also only a small proportion of projects in the project development pipeline are viable to produce battery materials. And a large proportion of these are high-pressure acid leach or HPAL projects, which are neither particularly environmentally friendly, nor have a great history of reaching their production targets on time. We also discussed the bankruptcy of Ultura mining in Australia and the potential musical chairs that could occur in the Western Australian hard rock lithium space off the back of this. There are some important takeaways to be had from this event, particularly for other potential battery materials developers. In exploration news, I wanted to highlight two projects in the rare earth space. It's so exciting, actually, not to be talking about nickel for a month. There's been so much nickel news over the past few months, since nickel companies are practically the only ones who've been able to afford to drill. Anyway, the two projects I wanted to talk about are Hastings Technology Metals Yanjibana project in Western Australia, and Ionic Rare Earths Makutu project in Uganda. Hastings recorded an intercept of 7 metres at 7.3% total rare earth oxide, among other high-grade intercepts in the Fraser's area, which is well class for hard rock rare earth exploration. Ionic recorded substantially lower grades of just over 1,000 parts per million, which on the face of it look lousy. Until you factor in that Ionic's project is a totally different type of deposit Based on iron adsorption clays, similar to deposits that are economically mined in China, in my view these are really good results from Ionic, and I'm keeping a close eye on this company. In development land, it was very much a tale of two lithium projects: Mali Lithiums, or Firefinch as it is now to be known, Goulamina project in Mali, and Liontown Resources Kathleen Valley project in Western Australia. The two studies really highlighted the different costs of doing business in different countries. The Gulamila DFS had all-in sustaining costs of US$313 per tonne, FOB, and pre-production CAPEX of $194 million US dollars for over 400,000 tonnes per year of SC6. The costs in the Kathleen Valley PFS are actually higher on both OPEX and CAPEX for 350,000 tonnes per year of SC6 elsewhere capital markets continued to be robust for battery materials in October with around 159 million US dollars raised across the sector that was down month on month but capital raised for the full year in 2020 is now only down 38% much better than even 3 months ago when it was down 74% year on year i would expect the next 3 months to be relatively slow seasonally apart from around the pilbara Ultura situation where there may be raisings underway but thereafter we need to see some significant inflows into the sector if we're going to see a solution to the impending supply demand imbalance in battery raw materials. Moving downstream now and there are a number of recalls of PHEVs due to battery fires which is not great news for cathode makers, battery makers or EV makers. One automaker suggested that the problem was quote impurities in the production process of the battery cells, unquote, highlighting again how important materials purity is to battery makers. China has set new EV targets, which while a little bit more conservative than previously for 2025, reiterate its commitment to electric vehicles, which is a great result for the industry. And in a regulatory filing, Tesla announced plans to spend between 4.5 and 6 billion US dollars per year over the next two years to expand its production capacity. These numbers totally eclipse anything that's been spent on raw material investment over the past three years and highlight the key issue of underinvestment in raw materials in the industry. In good news for non-lithium batteries, California has become the first state to announce a long-duration storage procurement. It published a request for offers for 500 megawatts of long-duration storage capacity to come online by 2026. In our data roundup this month, in EV land, we saw record global plug-in EV sales in September, with China coming to join Europe at the party in a big way. We're now on track to hit over 1 million EV sales in Europe in 2020 and close to a million in China. And there are signs that 2021 could see significant sales growth as well. October saw the first positive week-on-week move in Spodgamine concentrate prices in China since 2019 and before that 2017. Given the fact that spot lithium carbonate prices are also creeping up, we believe we've passed the trough now for lithium prices and the direction should be upwards from here. LME nickel prices also perform better in October and given what's going on in the US at the moment, any dollar weakness could see them better bid. They managed to catch up a bit to nickel sulfate prices during October. In equity land, most battery raw materials segments outperformed in a tough market in October, with our graphite, hard rock lithium and rare earth baskets leading the way. The positive vaccine news this week, plus the uncertainty around the presidential election in the US, could result in some dollar weakness, which would also be helpful for resources stocks from a macro point of view. So that's the end of our news roundup for this issue. I would also point to anyone who's interested to some of my blogs on LinkedIn, which are open access. In the past few weeks, these have included discussions on why some manganese is more equal than others, and also why battery recycling isn't going to save the sector in the near term, as many have suggested. If you have any questions on any of the topics I've covered in this podcast, please contact me, or you can find more information on our website at www.batterymaterialsreview.com. I'm delighted today to have the chance to speak to Ying Lu, who's a senior analyst specializing in cobalt and also battery nickel for Roskill. Ying, many thanks for speaking to us today.
1: Hello, everyone. Thanks, Matt. Pleasure to be here.
0: Great. So just to recap, can you explain the difference between class one nickel, which is suitable for battery materials, and class two nickel, which is not?
1: Sure. First off, at Roskew, we divide refined nickel into three product groups. These are class 1 and class 2 nickel plus nickel sulfate and salts as a third group. First, we have class 1 nickel, are usually very high purity stuff. That includes metal products like electrolytic nickel cathode, powder bracket, typically has a purity of over 99.8% of nickel. And this type of material is used in a diverse range of nickel's more niche applications where high purity is really important, including alloy steels, castings, nonferrous alloys, and plating. And some portion of the production is also used in stainless steel sector where it is added for melt chemistry balancing purposes. And some class one powder and brackets are also used by nickel sulfate producers who don't have their captive mine supply, which is then used um, in battery cathode materials. And on the other hand, we have class two nickel. This includes ferronickel and nickel pig iron, or we also call it MPI. These materials have much lower nickel grade than class one metals. For example, ferronickel is typically 35% of nickel with the rust iron, and MPI uh, has much lower nickel content of around 8 to 12%. And these class two products are exclusively used in stainless steel production and therefore not very suitable for battery production. And moving on, to the last group, nickel sulfate and salts. And these are often produced as part of an integrated supply chain from intermediate products such as nickel matte or some mixed nickel cobalt precipitates. We also call them MSP and MHP. These products can also be produced from conversion of class one metal using sulfuric acid, and as well as from recycled batteries and plating residues,
0: and so on. Brilliant. So as a rough split, how much of current global nickel production and how much of your forecast supply growth is in the class one space that's suitable for battery manufacturing?
1: So in terms of the market size for each nickel products. Based on our research, we believe that Class One nickel currently accounts for about 35% of the total refined nickel supply. That is in comparison to the Class Two feed, which represents just over 60% of the supply. And we see very limited limited growth in Class One metal production over the next few years because the market has not required this form of nickel as we now have. The rapid growth of class two nickel to feed the the Chinese stainless steel market. In addition, there have been very few discoveries of large scale sulfide deposits globally suitable for production of class one products. But for battery grade nickel, which mainly comes in the form of nickel sulfate, up until a a few years ago, these products represented a very a relatively niche market with the total production only accounted for about less than 3% of the total nickel market up until 2014. And since then, we see that the consumption of nickel sulfate has increased very rapidly as the requirement from lithium-ion batteries has, has grown over 20-fold in the past decade. However, if we look at the current market size, despite the rapid growth in recent years, the total sulfate market still only represents a trivial part of the total nickel consumption. And that explains why such product only appeared on the nickel radar recently. Going forward, over the next decade, we focused an explosive growth rate for nickel use in batteries that's mostly come in the form of nickel sulfate. And it, it is going to become a key growth area for the total nickel demand. This is not just supported by the uptake of VVs and their large energy capacity, but also by the greater use of nickel-rich cathode materials in order to improve energy density of such batteries. So uh, overall, we believe that battery applications may have the potential to become the next largest nickel application right after the stainless steel by 2030.
0: Excellent. Thanks very much. So, obviously, there's a fair amount of focus currently on new supply, and particularly with regards to the announced Indonesian H Power projects. Some were due to start production, I think, in 2021. Can you give us an update on when those projects are now likely to come into production?
1: Right, sure. Well, we're currently monitoring half a dozen Indonesian edge power projects that are currently at various stages of development. And these projects mostly involve Chinese investment and with interests from battery cathode manufacturers, and that will uh, typically target a battery-grade nickel and cobalt intermediate product, also called MHP. For some of the projects, they're also planning to be fully integrated to the refining stage to produce cobalt or nickel sulfate themselves. So you're correct that some of the projects had initially been anticipated to start in 2021. And in fact, the most advanced project was expected to commission in Q3 this year. This is the obi Island project a joint venture between Indonesian Harita Group and China's Ningbo Legend. The project targets capacity of of around uh, 37 kilotons per year of nickel and will ultimately be fully integrated to produce battery-grade sulfate product. So we recently see announcements from the company that saying they will now not start until March next year, mainly because of COVID-related delays. And they have also signed a supply contract recently uh, with a Chinese battery acid producer, Jem. And it is also stated in that announcement that the lightant has to be ensure that the project is commissioned by June 2021. However, despite the, the delays, we still believe the project is the most advanced uh, among all the Indonesian edge power projects in the pipeline at the moment. And there are also another two projects are being developed at Morowali Industrial Park on Sulawesi that includes PT QMB and PT Huayue. Both projects are now under construction and they have a similar size targeting around 50 to 60 kilotons per year of nickel. And... They're both joint ventures between Chinese steel giant Xinjiang Group and nickel copper refiners like Jam and Huayu. So both projects, they initially target, targeted first production in late 2020 and early next year as well. But we understand because of the travel restrictions put in place in order to mitigate the spread of the virus early this year, they have not been able to send the technical experts and all the equipment as scheduled to Indonesia, which has made it more challenging to advance things for, for those projects. So now we believe that both projects have been delayed until 2022. And elsewhere in Pomala, we, we also have Sumitomo Metal Mining and the Valley. They are looking into possibility of building a, a new. H-power plant, targeting capacity of 40 kilotons per year of nickel, which will then be further processed in Japan into nickel sulfate products. So we were expecting a final investment decision in Q2 this year, but this has also been delayed and at the moment has still not, not been taken. We believe that if this gets the go ahead, then the project will likely not come online until the middle of the next decade.
0: Just to sort of reiterate, commissioning in an HPOW project is, is all very well, but how long does it typically take to come into full production after commissioning?
1: If we look at the historical projects, like the most successful one probably is the one in Philippines, Coral Bay technical projects developed by Sumitomo Metal Mining. That project takes about four or five years to come online. And then another example is the Ramo project in Papua New Guinea. It also takes similar time to be online. And it has also reached to the design capacity very recently. So definitely there's a, for those types of power projects, there has been a history of delays and cost overruns. And I guess these are all the problems that all the new developers has to face going forward.
0: Okay, thanks very much. And I guess a key factor for auto OEMs at the moment is sustainability. Pumping of tailings into seawater is an immediate ESG fail for most Western world investors, OEMs particularly. What's the latest update on how those Indonesian projects are going to be disposing of their waste?
1: This is very interesting and very good question. So absolutely, we've really seen the ESG narrative developed over the course of the year and clearly environmental concerns from all stakeholders involved along the EV battery supply chain are starting to become impossible to be ignored by upstream producers. We have already heard from Elon Musk back in July when he declared that Tesla intends to prioritize sourcing nickel that has been mined in an environmentally sensitive way. And now what that exactly means is still open to interpretation for the market, but just as cobalt has human rights concerns for artisanal mining from the DRC, nickel has, uh, also has its own sustainability issues as well. So we, we've just been talking about Indonesian piles and how important they are going to be in terms of providing the market with large volumes of battery-grade feedstocks. But they've not come without, without their ESG concerns. So the key problem for those projects is that we, we have to bear in mind that only about 2% of the material is actually extracted during the edge power process. And that means the rest is all waste. So that has to go somewhere. And normally a company would, would store this on land using a tailing stem. But these companies, they argue that tectonic activity in the Indonesian region, and also high rainfalls means it will be safer to adopt deep-sea tailing placement instead. So for those not familiar with these forms of disposal method, deep-sea tailings placement is quite a controversial method that involves piping the tailings left behind after hydrometallurgic processing of laterite ores out to the sea at great depths below the But this has unknown consequences to marine flora and fauna as at the moment, there's, there's no long-term studies have been considered that effect yet. So if we look at all the existing nickel operations now globally, the MCC Romo in Papua New Guinea, as I mentioned earlier, the only nickel edge power operation use these form of, forms of tailing disposal. And actually, last year, there was a spill accident, which turned the surrounding sea in less red and poisoned fish in the water nearby. And that news has become a very significant development in the narrative surrounding the sustainable sourcing of nickel. So for the three edge power projects we mentioned earlier, at the moment, we already have two edge power projects being constructed in Morawali. Huawei and and QMB they decided not to feature deep sea tailings placement. The decision we believe will impact them as they will now need to consider alternative on land storage methods potentially you know involving dry stack tailings and this could uh, result in further delays to their development and add additional costs. And the other projects the project in Obi Island The Harita Group announced early this year the company is now undertaking a feasibility study on deep-sea tailing placement. Whether the the other two projects' decision to scrap the the plan for for deep-sea tailing placement could influence Harita's decision to proceed is still not certain at the moment. And so let's see what decision they will make.
0: And just sort of moving on. So, currently, the bulk of nickel sulfate for batteries is made by reacting nickel metal with sulfuric acid. This tends to result in a premium for nickel sulfate above the LME price. But do you think that sort of two tier market is likely to persist going forward?
1: So, regarding this question, firstly, I guess it's, it is worth highlighting that the premium for nickel sulfate is not just determined by the production cost of these projects. The market fundamentals also play an important role here. So if you, if you have a material changes in the supply and demand picture, and that can have a big impact on how sulfate is priced against the underlying metal prices and could potentially cause a lot of volatility in the market. So if we take battery grade sulfate prices in China, by far the largest sulfate producer and consumer globally, as an example, we will see that such product has not always been sold as a premium against a metal price. The most recent example is that in Q3 last year, the premium actually fell into negative territory, mainly as a result of the depressed demand from the auto sector as China made um, deep cuts to to its EV subsidies. And secondly, although I know many people talk about producing nickel sulfate from metal conversions, it is in fact not the most important production route at the moment in the market in terms of the volume. So our research suggests that a large portion of the nickel sulfate at the moment is coming from processing of intermediate nickel products, and these are still the main feedstock for nickel sulfate. Production from processing these type of intermediates, such as MET, MSP, and MHP, currently represents around 60% of the total nickel sulfate production, with the share of metal conversion accounting for about under a quarter of the market, and the other 10 to 20% coming from recycling. However, much of the intermediate feedstocks are either locked into fully integrated operations or controlled by Chinese processes. And moving forward, based on the demand profile we we see for nickel sulfate, we believe that the growth from intermediates and recycling alone would not be able to meet the rapid increasing requirements from the battery sector. And therefore, that means we expect to see more sulfate production coming from conversion of class one metal products. And this will in turn require some displacement from other class one applications. And it is more likely to come from increasing substitution of class one with class two materials from stainless steel sector. And that's mainly because for, for other applications, class one nickel, still represents a more essential and more difficult to substitute component.
0: And obviously we talked there about the difficulty of sourcing nickel sulfate. Are you aware of any technologies to take sulfide concentrates directly to sulfate?
1: Yeah, so where at the present all, all the nickel sulfate supply is produced um, through you know intermediates or finished products or recycling, There are actually a number of direct from concentrate routes are being explored for commercial use, but have not yet been commissioned. For example, there are few companies exploring the possibility from this direct route. Like some companies in Canada, they have already undertaken test work to explore the roasting of nickel sulfide concentrates and produce sulfate by skipping the precipitation phase. However, we believe this technology is still quite early days for these processing routes. And for production of MHP from sulfide, actually there isn't any production for this route because all the production of MHP are from laterite, as we see. But there is actually a company, they produce... MSP from sulfide ore that is terrafame in Finland. So they use Bioleach, bioleaching technology as Sotgamo operations to produce an MSP product. And they are also planning to become fully integrated to nickel sulfate production. And they're expecting to come to start the first production next year. So currently the, the MSP they are producing, uh, we understand it has been sold to various processors of of nickel sulfate in Asia to produce sulfate products.
0: We talked a little bit about the sort of commodity manufacture of uh, nickel sulfate, but can you talk a little bit more about the process to convert material to battery grade nickel sulfate and and particularly discuss Mm. what sort of purity is needed for battery grade applications?
1: Yes, Absolutely. Theoretically speaking, nickel sulfate actually can be converted from all different forms of nickel. But given the current nickel price and sulfate premium, it remains economically viable to use some of the feedstocks. Therefore, at the moment, we understand there are mainly three groups of feedstock being utilized at existing operations at the moment. So the first group is formed by various intermediates including nickel matte and mixed nickel cobalt precipitates. The second group is presented, represented by class one nickel, mostly in the form of hydrometallurgical brackets and powders. And apart from these primary feeds, sulfate is also produced from recycled materials from both battery and non-battery applications uh, of nickel, such as plating sludges. Or end of life uh, lithium ion or, or even nickel metal hydride batteries. So there are variations in the flow sheets depending on what the starting material is. For example, if starting from intermediates, then several purification stages are often needed between the dissolution of the raw material and the final crystallization and drying stage that can include solvent extraction and carbon filtration in the process. But if you start from high purity feeds like class one nickel, the process is typically much simpler. While, while sulfate is, is mostly produced as a crystal form, but we understand that some of the producers they actually skip the crystallization stage to produce a solution instead. For example, in the case of some Producers, which are forward integrated to battery precursor or cathode production in order to cut the cost. So with regards to the purity of nickel sulfate are required by different applications, and there are actually no universal standards for battery grade or plating grade, given this is a specialty chemical products. And that means the actual grade is often tailored to the end consumer's needs. We also need to bear this in mind that purity of sulfate is, of course, very important to the end users. But at the same time, consistency in specifications can also be crucial for both plating and battery users. But in general, there are some, some general requirements for, for desirable, you know, for by battery producers or by plating users. For example, uh, for battery applications, the minimum purity typically needs to be higher than 21%. While less the, for the plating, purity requires typically higher over 22%. And also for the impurities, battery industry typically prefer sulfate with, with lower magnetic elements uh, in there. For example, iron content or zinc content or, or, cream, or chromium content, that's for in order to ensure a better battery performance. While it's for the plate industry, they tend to be more strict in the cobalt content compared with battery users.
0: And around about how many battery-grade nickel um, sulfate producers are in the market currently?
1: We have so far profiled over 70 nickel sulfate operations globally on an asset-by-asset basis, and among all the existing profile operations, over 80% of the producers currently target a battery-grade product. And geographically speaking, most of the operations are located in China. The country alone represents nearly 70% of the total production, largely benefiting from its thriving battery and plating industries. So There actually has been a noticeable trend in the past few years is that much of the growth in ecosophage supply has not come from fully integrated producers, producers with their captive mine supply, but mostly has been driven by the rise of of processes requiring third-party fees. So we see that over the last decade, the number of non-integrated operations has more than doubled As um, a number of conversion plants in China or elsewhere have been rapidly built up to process MHP and class one nickel. So the main reason for this trend is that I guess the the nickel price has remained at a level uh, that have not incentivized much of the new mine supply in recent years, particularly new production, which is suitable for processing into nickel sulfate, rather than class two nickel goes to the stainless steel industry. So this tells us that the expansions from integrated producers were actually not sufficient to meet the growing trend uh, demand in in the past years.
0: So what you seem to be saying is, uh, even though there's a fair amount of processing capacity in the system, um, there's a shortage of raw material supply. How how long is that likely to persist for?
1: Well, so, if we need to answer this question, we need to understand where those feedstock are gonna come from and uh, what types of feedstock would be essential for the battery industry. So the, the key question is not just uh, availability, but also suitability you know, for, for the feedstock going forward. So if we, as I mentioned, the primary uh, feedstock in forms of uh, hydromat uh, intermediates is still the main feedstock which has been utilized in market and we believe it's still going to be the case uh, given perhaps the only the indonesian power projects can have the such the scale in if we look at the the total demand numbers so that means the successful of indonesian power projects will be very crucial at least in the short to medium term because only that country can provide such scale, we're looking at. And at the same time, a lot of class one material would also be required by converters, uh, by battery precursor producers, and particularly outside Asia, you know, in Europe and in North America, where nickel intermediates are not very accessible for them. And there's also an issue for this feedstock because they are likely to compete with stainless steel and other traditional class one applications for more class one units for dissolving purpose. So, and then we, we also have recycling um, as a, another source. And we do see there will be a, a great growth potential from secondary feed in the longer term. You know, when you have the large size EV batteries reach, reach their life cycle and to be recycled, the problem for for this source is that the battery recycling industry is still in its infancy now, and there are many barriers and problems need to be resolved from either regulatory or technical perspective until we actually create a relatively mature and a closed loop system. So, if you take these all all these factors into account, yeah, we do expect there will be the future feedstock, which is suitable for the battery industry, would be very tight. And there's going to be a growing deficit. But um, we probably, it's more, probably more um, appropriate to put it as a investment requirements other than a deficit. Yeah. So we, we do expect there will be a lot of investment need to go into this space um, in order to fill the gap.
0: Ying Lu from Roskill, thanks very much indeed for your time today. Thanks a lot. So that brings us to the end of our podcast for November. You can get more detail on any of the topics I've discussed in the latest issue of Battery Materials Review, which you can find at www.batterymaterialsreview.com. I'm Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and this has been Recharge. Thanks for listening.